Welcome to a special episode of Building Sustainably, The Road to Net Zero, a podcast brought to you by RPS. Throughout the series, our goal has been to provide valuable insights into real-life case studies and offer actionable advice on defining, designing, and managing net zero projects and programs. Our esteemed guests have shared a wealth of knowledge with us so far, and in this episode, we'll be revisiting some of the most enlightening and thought-provoking moments. Tune in to learn from the best and take your sustainability journey to the next level. Our first guest on the list is Sean Hansen, Chief Executive Officer in Power Consulting, who shared how behavioral science can be the answer to solving complex social and climate-related problems. Empower works with public sector organizations, most commonly with local authorities, and our simple message is that we want our clients to achieve better outcomes that cost less. It helps its clients to deliver sustainable, measurable change in complex systems. We've designed a unique toolkit called Edgework to make this happen, and we're really excited to be applying that approach to the most complex of complex systems, climate change. When somebody gets involved with us and we can see that Actually, they're ticking boxes. They're not really ambitious for sort of shifting the needle, changing the dial. That's kind of very difficult place to operate in. And we would choose probably if we had a choice of partners to work with, we'd go for the ambitious ones. You have to have conditions for success. And for that, has the public authority we're working with, have they set a target for their place? Have they got ambition for their own council or for the whole place or the whole county or for the particular sort of market segments in their area. So if they've actually got a, a climate ambition, that helps because you know what your conditions for success are and you know what it is that you're actually targeting. So again, we would look to find somebody who is in that place. We can bring in the data and the science that affects that change. And I think also we would be looking for somebody who would know how to use that data and recognize the difference between short-term versus long-term programs of work. The work that people will be doing around net zero, people doing around responding to the climate emergencies, you have to foresee the course of work that plans ahead for the next 50 years. You're not planning ahead for until the next election. And again, in terms of the question that you've asked, in terms of who we would like to get involved in, we like to see that ambition being something that is medium and long term, not just for the immediate future. There's information out there that you can derive from and you can make assumptions around in terms of using existing data and being able to present it in a way that can show where particularly around emissions and energy use is in particular areas what we've got is access into organizations which compile that data and we just present it in a way that allows us to be able to show benchmark information for our local authorities so that they can understand that where they sit where the local organizations sit within their relative peer groups and so on and so that again gives them a target gives them something to reach for we do form long-term relationships. We've got some very long-term partners, but the fundamental purpose of our organization is not to create dependency. Our, the purpose of our organization is to, to be able to help organizations understand how they can influence and make change happen for themselves. So that kind of knowledge transfer is really important for us. There is something about, over a long term, somebody taking a role to keep checking back in to make sure that people are on track because with the long term, you know this is a, somebody who understands the duration of a long-term project and program, you will understand that. You can quickly go off track if you don't keep checking and monitoring the progress. And so we do like to, at the very least, if we kick something off, we do like to check back in and make sure that that impact is sustained. 
there's a point I suppose I should make really here, which is about climate leadership, the need for authenticity, the, the fact that we need to be authentic about our leadership, which can be difficult. And the reason why I say that it's difficult is usually whenever you're demonstrating leadership, you want to be positive. You want to be really, really positive about the way that behavior change can impact. But actually, there's a lot of really negative messages with climate change. There's a lot of negative things that you kind of almost need people to understand the severity of the issues that we're facing, which can be quite negative. And being authentic with that negativity, but also extremely positive about the potential for change is something that we try to work with as well. I was involved in a discussion just in the last few days with some of my colleagues who were referring back to a council that had, for example, made a choice, a cabinet had made a choice that at one of its sessions where they would usually put food and meals on afterwards, they'd made a change and that change was they weren't going to serve meat at one of these cabinet sessions and that that was going to affect behaviour change. And a response from the team of people that I work with who are behavioural scientists was just horror because that's not behaviour change. That's restricting access to things which actually tends to create a backlash. And if you're doing and using behavioral, behavioral science and behavioral psychology, you need to understand that there's a difference between restricting people's access to something and actually persuading them to do something different. Turn on your fans, turn off your air conditioning, because 77% of your neighbors are saving money as a consequence of this. And that simple social pressure message actually had a huge and tangible impact. And this is the point about behavioral science is that it's not necessarily the things that you think will make the difference or shift the needle or change the dial. You need some science behind it to understand what really motivates people to change their behaviors over a long term. And in this case, social pressure, it turns out, is the most effective way of achieving that kind of change. That's what we love getting involved in. And that's the kind of research that we like doing with local authorities. Next, we explore a reliable and green heat pump system with Jonas Haman, Head of Business Development at Danfoss. Specifically, Jonas talks about heat networks and how Danfoss repurposes heat waste and develops innovative heat energy technologies. We worked on from a very old system where we use steam as heat instead of hot water. We, the steam was about 150 degrees, which is not very efficient. It doesn't matter if you use gas so much, but it matters if you want to use geothermal or more sustainable heat sources. So since 2007, we lowered the temperature in the district energy net by 70 degrees. So today it's about 65 degrees C. And this has allowed us then to integrate waste heat from air compressors. It's allowed us to integrate waste heat from our own data center. And we also have plans to integrate waste heat from a electrolysis plant in the future. And that's basically heat that would be expelled into the air if we didn't capture it and then reused it. And we use heat pump technology for doing that. In addition to that, we also we have our the neighboring town next to the campus where we are sort of sharing the district energy network with them. It's two independent networks. So it's two independent hot circuits. But in between, we have what is called a bidirectional heat exchanger. So that means that we can send heat into the town, the local town, or we can take in heat if we need it into our own site. And that also gives some 
flexibility and it always allows both us but also the citizens of this town to get the lowest cost heating as possible. The diversification of technologies, especially on the heat production side, is quite important. And then once you have the network installed, but also in the planning of the network, there are also digital tools that helps optimize the way that the network is sized and calculating the cost of getting an additional user on the network or additional home or office on the network. So also to have that analysis of it and digital control once it, it's installed so that you can optimize the way that you produce your heat by having insights to when is it consumed so that you don't have that overproduction of heat in the network. And I think that is also quite important when you talk about the technologies that should be be used and how you can help getting insights into your heat production, heat distribution and heat consumption. And in the end, it will also allow you to have more advanced control, which means that you can maybe preheat your building a tiny bit before one wakes up in the morning. Our next guest, John Daly, Asset Sustainability and Data Manager at Magenta Living, talked about successful retrofit strategies to achieve vibrant homes, lives and neighbourhoods. John shed some light on what a retrofit programme is and how to measure it, decarbonisation culture and his holistic approach to reaching the 2050 net zero target. We're dead interested in not just our retrofit, but also our new developments. So there's a lot going on in there. We've got our officers in operation. So we're based at two different locations. So we've got Partnership Bill, which is our main office. We've also as well got our depot, which is St. Mary's Gate, which we're trying to make green. We're responsible as well for green space as well within all that too. And as well, um, we believe in doing that all together with a decarbonisation culture. So it's about not just saying, oh, it's like me doing everything. And we've got a very talented team, specifically within our departments, uh, asset strategy and sustainability. But again, it's the wider organisation and everyone within it, because if it wasn't for everyone believing that goal, we wouldn't be achieving the great things that we are. There's loads going on at the minute and priorities at the minute are all around our retrofit at the minute. So as I say, we're doing a lot on uh, social housing decarbonisation funds. So the Wave 1 project is like surely under the way. And we've also got Wave 2, we've just put a bid in for, which is really interesting. We're looking as well at sustainable education for residents as well, because about 20% of all energy use at the moment, especially with cost of living, is all down to resident behaviour. Building new homes as well, all around modern methods of construction and learning lessons to make them zero carbon ready but again the list is endless to be honest Chris and I'm just proud of everything that we've done and what we're doing and obviously all the people within it so loads going on it's all about making a difference and as I say it's usually hand in hand between the lowest performed properties and like obviously that the people who need it the most but also on the back of that in terms of residence impact I'm also dead interested as well on looking at will the property be sustainable in the future as well. So again, we look at it from a strategy perspective, is it strategically important in an area that we need to work in, which a lot of the time it is. But then also as well, we need to look at will it also reach 2050 goals and modeling around that. So again, is it a long-term investment or can we help the residents in other ways? So there's loads going into it, but the big like be all ends all really is as much as I agree with the four stage approach you're talking about. For me, like I think the way the government's getting on now with new standards are passed 2035 the residence is the most important thing and if i had to give one piece of advice is put people at the forefront because every line of the spreadsheet that gives you the home there's a person living behind it and that's why we do it and it's understanding that resident impact from the front and i think for me looking at value 
it's we can't just be looking at it from a financial perspective. We've got to do the right thing. We've got to take in considerations of all the qualitative approaches as well, as well as some of the metrics that may not have been considered outside of basically finance, we'll say before, around how residents live, feel poverty, strategic importance, income, you know, deprivation, how do we improve these? And then looking at that holistically within not just what we do, but how can we make effective partnerships to look at this for communities? So do we have local authorities? Do we look at other housing associations? Do we look at charities? Do we look at care associations? And we've got to look at it value-wise like that because we can do great things together. Phil Marsden, Director of Project Management at Muse Developments, joins next to discuss how Muse Development sets a new standard for sustainable development with one of their most ambitious projects, Eden, a 12-storey office development built in New Bailey, Salford, designed to be net zero carbon in operation, which targets a neighbour's 5.5-star rating. Yeah, partnership is absolutely key to what we do. I mean, most of our if not all of our projects are delivered in partnership, usually with local authorities, sometimes with landowners. We do have some strategic partnerships that Muse are also involved with, delivering some really long-term complex mixed-use developments. And it's absolutely essential to what we do. You know, we're a placemaker. We create places that benefit the communities in which we're working within. And we have a long-term view, and that's so incredibly important. We don't actually hold buildings we sell all of our buildings but because of the long-term nature of the developments that we're involved with we have such a vested interest such and a massive responsibility actually in creating really good really good places that involves really good quality infrastructure and public realm encouraging sustainable transport but also good quality sustainable buildings and that's hard that viability on projects is a massive challenge that requires Changing infrastructure from car dominated to more sustainable transport requires changes in mindset and within the public. There's challenges that come with that and having strong partners alongside us who have that shared long-term vision that can invest in the right areas is crucial. We can't do it on our own and our partners, local authority level, but also partners in our supply chain, the contractors and the consultants we work with everyone's sharing that vision that we've got and that long-term view. And I think that's really important. The long-term view is absolutely crucial. We can't deliver the transformational change that we want to without working in partnership. Yeah, it's clearly really important. At Muse, we have our own sustainability strategy now, which doesn't just focus on carbon, but clearly reducing carbon is a, is a, key, a key objective within that. It's really challenging. Perhaps come on to this later on, but we're sort of finding ways to get through the operational energy side, but still massive challenges over reducing embodied carbon to the levels that we need to. And I think if you look at, say, the strategic partnerships we're involved with, like English Cities Fund, which is a partnership we've got with Legal and General and Homes England, that partnership we've got there helps us because, again, go back to it, we've got that long-term view. The types of projects that we look at with that, that's Muse, but also with ECF, are long-term schemes. So we've got the ability to look at things over that sort of longer term period. And again, the collaboration with local authorities to try and maximise funding opportunities to help close viability gaps, to help us deliver more sustainable buildings and places is really crucial. But again, like you, like we said before, Chris, working in partnership with everyone in our supply chain, you know, to reduce carbon in the built environment is going to really reduce embodied carbon levels. It's going to need 
some massive change in the way we build buildings, the materials we use and the way buildings are built. And that requires us working with not just our main contractors, but getting far closer to our supply chain. You know, if you think about how sort of removed, I guess, a, a developer is from the manufacturer of some plasterboarding or some M&E kit or whatever, we've got to close that gap and work together with the products and the materials that are going into our buildings to reduce the carbon. So I think partnership, collaboration, absolutely crucial on many different levels to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, along with all the, with all the other sustainability aspirations that we've got. It's interesting. I think, okay, if we looked at the full sort of list of targets that we've set around operational energy and body carbon, air quality, all, all the full thing, it does come at a cost. I say, if you use Eden as an example, though, where we've performed brilliantly on our operational energy and we've got, we've done pretty well on embodied carbon. We need, we, everyone needs to do better on that, but, but we've done really well there. That building has probably cost us two to three percent more than a traditional office building. I think that surprises people actually. And it's because there is no crazy technology in there. There's no silver bullet where we've had to spend millions of pounds on a piece of kit or something that makes the building perform the way it is doing. It's done through having that clear vision. So that becomes a key part of every decision that's made on the project. And then a completely rigorous approach to design, you know, and it's, it just means every single aspect of the building needs to be analyzed and refined. And to be honest, the built simply, the more simple we keep things, buildings need to become far more simple. We need to build with less. Less is less cost, is less carbon in, in many ways. And actually just creating much simpler, more efficient buildings goes, it goes a long way to achieving what, what we need to be doing, particularly around operational energy. So it's not, I think we need to move away from seeing building more sustainable buildings and places as a costly thing. There is some cost, you know, you look at the passive house scheme I mentioned there, there's a longer program on that scheme because the contractor's got to look more rigorously at the air testing they're doing before they can move on and up, up the building. So that's added some program, which obviously has some cost. And there is some kit, you know, that we didn't perhaps use five, 10 years ago, the air source heat pumps and, and things like that have a little bit of a cost to them. But I think the approach we are certainly taking is that build with less, build not not boring buildings. We still build fantastic buildings, but make the structure, the systems that make them as efficient and simple as possible. Passive house principles around facade, it's absolutely crucial. Getting the facade right on a commercial building, 40% glass. Guess what? That costs less, less glazing. Put more columns into the floor plate. These simple design things and just like say, having that complete rigor around that and sticking to it, absolutely sticking to it. There's always a sort of easy solution where I think, oh, well, actually, we'll just go back to what we did before. Well, don't do that. Carry on and keep, keep the vision you've got. That's the way. And having working with the right partners. Yeah. That also get that and embrace it and can, and will be supportive and clearly the consultants we work with having that level of understanding and knowledge to be able to do that is clearly crucial. Embodied carbon is, is different. That is a, like I say, we can get to a point, but to really step that on, there's got to be a change in, in materials, which may come at a cost. It, it's more about things changing and innovation within the construction industry, to be honest, to move that on. So that is a real challenge. And I think if you look to build a truly net zero carbon commercial building or residential building, hitting the embodied carbon targets without offsetting Clearly, there's always going to be a little bit of offsetting, but by minimising the offsetting, that is a challenge. But just throwing money at stuff isn't probably the answer to deal with that. 
Liz Brown, Senior Project Manager at RPS Group, took us through the remarkable retrofitting of Park Hill in Sheffield City, a project that followed a retentionist strategy to save roughly 1.2 thousand tonnes of embodied carbon. One of the meetings that really stuck in my head was sort of the guy from the concrete sort of subcontractor who was sort of middle-aged, only ever done sort of concrete stuff, was clearly kind of very safe pair of hands, knew about concrete, and literally kind of like thrashing it out with the architect and with the structure engineers to go, no, we can do this. We can save those um, sort of spindles. And by saving the spindles, you save the balustrades and you save the whole piece. And that's what kind of came together. And it was actually... You need to kind of have those rigid PM sort of tools where you set your meeting up, you set what you need to actually achieve in those meetings and about having that kind of sharp timescale. So, right, we can save the top rails. Let's move on, guys. We've sorted that out. Let's go on for the next challenge. But actually, once you get that kind of joy in the room where it is kind of everybody focused on the task of the spindles, sit back, let the experts talk. And it is watch the magic in the room. And what would you say, there's a lot going on there, but the biggest learnings that you've taken away from working on the project? I think it's going back to those series of workshops where we knew we needed to save budget to make the scheme affordable and for the scheme to go over the line. We knew there was very much a retentionist strategy and there was also this drive for sustainability as well, which is a difficult thing to achieve in historic projects to balance the two. We had a great team around the table. And for me, my lessons learned from that is don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. So set the team up, but you're there to kind of get the best out of people. Stick your head above the parapet, ask the experts, ask them why they can't make a spindle mould. And it's amazing where you can go with it. Maggie Bosanket, Low Carbon Economic Development Team Leader at Durham County Council, joined us to discuss Durham County's sustainability strategy which has been recognised by the UK government as nationally leading in its quest for net zero carbon. But what approaches or lessons do you think you could share with the audience that you found to be particularly effective? It's important to recognise that different organisations work in different ways and they have different bottom lines, different things they need to achieve. For a council, they need to achieve the best outcomes for our population. For private sector business, you have to make the profit. You have to please your shareholders. So for a university, it's the number of research papers they've had published. So it's important to recognise what the outcomes are that each organisation you're working with needs, or even each department needs, and trying to work to each other's strengths, recognise who can do what best and who will struggle with particular things. And there's no point going to some organisation saying, oh, will you do this for free because it's a nice thing to do? Because they're going to say, you can't do that, where somebody else can Many of our audience are in roles where they've been tasked to achieve net zero carbon targets across large property estates. What's the one piece of advice you would give them? Oh, I think be flexible, be passionate, be realistic, be friendly, give them chocolate biscuits. Yeah, recognise where people are coming from. Recognise that it will always be challenging. Every single building you do is never going to go textbook as you plan it. So flexibility is very, very important, being ready to shift and work with others. Nobody will ever have all the knowledge, I certainly don't. And yeah, just keep going. Tenacity, I think was the word you used, passion and tenacity, really important. Absolutely. And something else you've got, Maggie, bundles of energy, I would say. 
Last but not least, Dr. Roddy Yar, Executive Lead of Sustainability at the University of Strathclyde, enlightened us on his strategy for developing and implementing initiatives that align with the university's goal of achieving net zero emissions, including his instrumental role in delivering the successful £20 million combined heating and power scheme project at the main campus and his involvement in the Glasgow City Innovation District. It's a very interesting role that you've got at the moment, and I'd imagine it involves quite a lot of collaboration with teams both inside and outside of the university. Definitely, yeah. The word collaboration is is now at the core of what I do and what we do as a university in this sort of operational sustainability agenda. It's a key theme. Collaboration is the only way we're going to get to where we need to get to. We all need to work together and build those relationships, come together around things like new investment models that we need to bring forward at a regional scale. So we need the scale, I think. Investors want to see scale. And we also think about social justice and a just transition in the work that we're doing. One last question for you, and it's about the lessons you've learned. What's the one key piece of advice you'd share with our listeners? I've got several bits of advice, but I suppose the finding the foundation of this is to have a strong vision that's backed up by data and that's evidence-led. And if you work with colleagues to understand that vision and see how it relates to your stakeholders, then I think you'll get support. I think you need to get the development funding in place because without that vision and informing that vision, you can't do anything without that funding risk and taking a bit of a punt, let's say, because that helps you bring forward the investment pipeline ultimately. And I think a new way of dealing with that funding might be to capitalise that revenue in future. We hope you enjoyed these valuable insights from our fantastic guests. As season one of Building Sustainably, The Road to Net Zero comes to a close, we want to express our sincere appreciation for your support and engagement. To discover more strategies for achieving the crucial net zero goal by 2050, tune into the show and follow us for season two. On behalf of the RPS team, thank you for listening and joining us on this journey towards a more sustainable future.